Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a great panel of uh, political science professors with us on the show today, and I'm really looking forward to hearing their observations and insights about the stories we'll be discussing. As we go on the air a little bit after 9 o'clock live this morning, the um, Eggs and Issues Breakfast, which is one of the major early events in the legislative session, um, an annual breakfast for business leaders, nonprofit leaders, and others. There are usually well over 1,000 people who attend down at the World Congress Center. And it's a place for the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House to make remarks in which um, they often roll out some of the initiatives that they plan to pursue in the legislative uh, session. Greg Bluestein is uh, covering that event right now and is going to join us a little bit late uh, as the uh, breakfast continues. Um, but there is a major announcement that we're going to talk about in just a minute that the governor is making at Eggs and Issues, and we'll talk about it after I've introduced the panel, starting with Professor Charles Bullock, who I've always said, and most people would agree, is the dean of political science professors in uh, the Southeast. Charles Bullock, who's been a professor of political science at the University of Georgia um, since uh, the 60s, uh, Chuck, we always love having you on the show. Thanks for being here today. Always like being here with you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Professor Andre Gillespie is back with us as well, Professor of Political Science and uh, Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Hi, Andre. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Fine. I'm really glad you're here as well. And we're uh, back with Chris Grant who is Professor of Political Science. And Chris, um, Chris, are you still co-chair, or are you now the sole chair of the Political Science Department at Mercer University in Macon? In the fascinating interplay of who's chair and who's not, I'm back to being co-chair, because okay. we have five <laughs> people that I have to supervise. Uh, uh, Chris, Chris Grapp, before we go any further, I think it's worth your mentioning on the air how much Charles Bullock has meant to you in your career in uh, education. Oh, thank you, Bill. This is a, a great opportunity for me. Um, Chuck was my dissertation advisor, but more than a dissertation advisor, he was my close friend. Um, in many ways, I look to his advice and his mentorship in every stage of my life. Um, he has meant more to me probably than any other human being um, in my professional wow. life, certainly, and in many ways, my personal life. Wow, and I never knew that as we uh, put you together on uh, this panel. That's quite a tribute, Chuck. It really is. Yeah, I'm touched by it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right, let's start with the big announcement that's um, already been uh, in the pages of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, online, that is. Um, uh, Governor Kemp this morning at Eggs and Issues announces that Q-cells, 
um, a giant company in the solar industry. They manufacture solar panels and components for solar panels is going to expand an existing operation up near Cartersville. They have about 750 employees up there right now. But they are going to put $2.5 billion to expand their operation to two plants uh, that will produce panels. It's what the company and federal and state officials say is the largest ever investment in clean energy manufacturing in the United States. States. They uh, believe that by 2024, they will have some 2,500 jobs at their uh, two plants. So it's an enormous uh, a coup for the state of Georgia. And politicians on both sides of the aisle are taking credit for and have reason to take credit for attracting uh, this expansion of Q cells. Uh, first of all, um, Senator John Ossoff was the author of a uh, measure this past year in which he was calling for incentives for solar energy manufacturing. It was eventually incorporated into President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, um, and it, it does give incentives, big, big tax incentives for companies in clean energy to uh, uh, expand their operations, build operations. Um, President Biden, of course, uh, since he... Uh, worked hard to get the Inflation Reduction Act in place, take some credit for this. And, and Governor Kemp, whose economic development team did an outstanding job in attracting the big Hyundai manufacturing plant not down near Savannah, uh, Rivian, uh, uh, which is out uh, Chuck Bullock's way. Um, so, I mean, everybody on both sides of the aisle can take credit uh, for this moving forward. And uh, Chuck Bullock, it really does place Georgia in an economical, in a really powerful position when it comes to clean energy between e-vehicles being produced here, battery plants for e-vehicles, as well now as this expansion of solar panels. It's, it's quite a coup for the state. It positions us very well uh, for the future, Chuck. Well, it does, yeah. That uh, battery plant you're talking about, a huge facility up, up at Commerce uh, is part of this. And also, this is part of a much broader effort, I think, by the United States, and that is to bring production back to this country. With COVID and the problems we encountered with regard to transportation and our heavy dependence upon having items that we very much needed being built across the Pacific Ocean, and then those plants were closing down. It was difficult to get them shipped in here. So I think this is uh, is a major kick, uh, not just in solar energy, but for production more broadly defined within the United States. Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more of this as we kind of learn from the experiences of the last three years. Uh, there is an interesting irony here, Andra, because, of course, many Republicans have were extremely critical of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, uh, attacking it because it was too expensive, uh, attacking Biden for uh, even putting it forward at a time when Republicans, many Republicans in Congress uh, thought the administration had already uh, had too many big ticket expenses. Um, and yet today, uh, it's so, given some pretty strong results for the state of Georgia, Andra. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, and I expect that people are still going to hold to their talking points. 
and you're still going to see people, you know, criticize the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that this is an opportunity, and I think what we see Governor Kemp demonstrating is that there is a way to try to uh, reach out to everybody on the basis of kind of mutual self-interest. So there are people who do not and will not herald uh, uh, you know, the expansion of this plan is anything that's going to actually help move us towards zero emissions. Uh, but there are people who will. There are other people who may find uh, the fact that the, the the batteries that are are being generated by this are going to actually now be put in cars uh, that are going to help people manage their gas costs after you have that initial sort of shock of having to pay a whole lot of more money for a car, right? And so there, there are different ways that you can pitch this to different constituencies and get different types of buy-in. Um, and so, you know, it takes some depth handling of it, but there's something in this for everybody, whether you care about the environment or whether you don't want to have to feel beholden to fluctuating gas prices at some point in the future. So this is a, this I, I view this as a win-win if it's if it's handled correctly. Chris, when uh, when the announcements were made about both Rivian and Hyundai building uh, massive plants to produce e-vehicles, <clears throat> excuse me, in the state, um, one of the subjects that came up was whether or not the legislature was going to uh, incentivize people to buy e-vehicles in a variety of ways. Would they build, first of all, more charging stations around the state? The answer to that is yes. The governor has announced they're putting a significant amount of money into expanding the network of charging stations. But there was also, in terms of e-vehicles, the desire on the part of the manufacturers to be able to direct, sell directly to consumers, not to have to go through car dealerships, which in this state is enormously controversial given the power of the uh, car dealers it, at uh, the legislature. And there were other concerns about whether the state legislature would support e-vehicles in the way that the manufacturers wanted to. Now, we turn to Q-cells, and there's a similar interesting issue here. When Georgia Power was before the PSC for its latest rate increase, one of the things they uh, talked about was a, an effort they want to de-incentivize to some extent people from putting solar panels on their roofs and drawing their power that way because Georgia Power says those customers uh, are not pay paying their fair share of Georgia Power uh, bills. So it's going to be interesting to see whether that or other legislation might be coming forward that will actually support all of this clean energy coming into the state. Well, I think Georgia Power is always an important player in politics in the state. Um, and so their interest is going to be represented in whatever legislation comes through. Uh, back to your earlier point, when there is credit to be claimed, everyone steps up to the plate and is eager to claim credit for this uh, plant coming, Q-cell plant. Um, and so it's a, it makes bipartisanship um, easy in claiming credit. Um, whereas in actually doing legislation, it's oftentimes difficult. Uh, one of the things that when I talk about Georgia in um, Southern politics is a very diverse state with a lot of different interests. And sometimes we think of diversity in terms of um, descriptive characteristics, but it really is very diverse in terms of people's interest. And whereas in some states, the power company is a compelling overriding interest. In Georgia, we don't have that kind of interest because we're so diffused in so many different industries. So your point about <clears throat> some people wanting green energy and wanting um, cell car, uh, um, electric vehicles, 
um, they make up a significant share of the Georgia population. I mean, I see in Macon that they make up a significant share of the population. I can only imagine in Atlanta that that is a larger group of people that also have influences, also have influence and wage um, political weight. And so it will be interesting to see how the power balancing comes out, because my suspicion at the end is that once again, everyone wants to take credit for something good. Um, Chuck Bullock, one of the reasons eggs and issues uh, may be particularly important this year is that during, first of all, in terms of Brian Kemp himself, we've talked about this on the show before today, but the governor really didn't roll out a lot of proposals for the issues, the agenda he intended to take on if he won a second term, which of course he did during his campaign. Uh, We didn't hear a lot either from uh, the lieutenant governor uh, about the Burt Jones, uh, when we've got a brand new Speaker of the House who is only now beginning to formulate an agenda. Um, so let's talk about uh, just that, especially in terms of Brian Kemp. We do hope that today, in addition to announcing these economic incentive uh, uh, development uh, projects, uh, we're going to hear more about what his actual agenda, what other issues he might take on. We know crime and violence will be one of them. Chuck? That's right. Yeah. What uh, Brian Kemp did is kind of campaign politics 101. That is, pick out three, no more than four issues, and talk about them constantly. Uh, it was very quite a contrast with the approach that Stacey Abrams took, where she had dozens or even maybe a hundred different issues she wanted to talk about, which made it difficult for people and also for reporters who were covering the campaigns to focus in on and what her top priorities were, where for Governor Kemp, we pretty much knew what they were. Uh, and then these other two new players, and especially uh, the new Speaker of the House, because that was not at all anticipated during the campaign season. So I think the people who were there at the breakfast, as well as the rest of us who were interested in politics, would be paying great attention in terms of what exactly they, they want to do with, with this time. Now, again, an issue kind of being, becomes very controversial. It's kind of the opposite thing about the uh, the uh, Korean investment in Georgia, which has been said is you know, very much bipartisan, everybody standing on the sideline cheering about it. Are there going to be some social issues which are going to get raised? Are these going to become high priorities? You know, issues relating to to abortion. It was that newspaper heading column heading the other day about you know first post row session. You know, is Georgia going to take some more action there? Uh, so, you know, those kinds of things which could become more difficult as our legislature becomes more evenly balanced. So is the approach going to be try to do things which you're going to have broad support for, like concerns about crime, uh, investing in the state, promoting the economy of the state, bringing jobs, everybody's in favor of that, or are going to get derailed in some of these other things? And then a cook could really throw a monkey wrench into it. This is well beyond control of the legislature. But there is a Supreme Court case coming out of Alabama and if the, Alabama, the Supreme Court upholds the decision of the trial court in Alabama, Georgia's going to probably have to redistrict its congressional districts as well as the state legislative districts. And nobody sees that on the on the horizon or even wants to think about it. Because in Alabama they have not they they uh, drew their lines in such a way that Democrats were disproportionately not represented, right? Well, it was, it's a really it's a, it's a Section Two case of the Voting Rights Act, and uh, the Alabama trial court uh, federal trial judge said you need to draw a second majority black district. 
And so if yes. that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. Down, then, that, then Georgia's going to have to probably come back and redraw another majority black district in its congressional delegation and would also ripple through the state House and state Senate districts, too. Well, there's an okay, so Andre, that was not even on our agenda today, but that's worth me- at least a bit of a mention here. Um, Chuck suggests that maybe we're going to end up having to uh, look at the proportional representation of African Americans in l- districts in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, there was always a, a, already a bit of a controversy in the last redistricting process about uh, the balance of power and the shift of some African-American voters from uh, David Scott's district into now Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. And so, you know, there are folks who are, you know, in, in South Cobb who felt disenfranchised by that particular pro- uh, prospect. Um, you know, I think the complication here in Georgia is, is that we know that some of voters shifted from the 6th district to the 7th district. Um, and the idea is if you shift Black voters and particular out of a district and you move them into a district that is majority minority but multiracial is that the same thing as diluting black voter strength so uh it's very it's much more complicated here than it is in alabama where you're still largely dealing with a black white binary but these are all the types of cases that 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 keep my friends who are uh civil rights litigators up at night and these are the things that we think about (laughs) in in, in the academy when we're thinking about representation (laughs) All right. Well, we'll put that on the horizon as an issue to watch uh, in the um, weeks and months ahead. But, Chris, let's go to another issue that uh, uh, Chuck Bullock just uh, talked about, and that is whether we're likely to see any action in the legislature this session on uh, expanding Georgia's restrictive abortion law. We know that in South Carolina, which had a six-week uh, ban, just like Georgia does, no abortions after so-called fetal heartbeat is detected, um, was overturned by the Supreme Court of South Carolina. Now, South Carolina's case was based on a privacy clause in the state constitution. Um, and the Supreme Court of the state said, yes, this violates that uh, clause. In Georgia, we have a privacy clause as well, but the litigants who wanted to overturn the, the, the uh, law here, the six-week law here, chose to go in a different direction. They, they said that at the time that the legislature passed the abortion law and it was signed into law, um, Roe had not been overturned by the Supreme Court, and therefore it was an invalid law. Okay, all that aside, um, there is talk that, that the legislature could, in fact, go after the easy access to uh, so-called abortion pills this session. And if they do, Chuck Bullock makes a good point. It could sort of derail a lot of efforts to do really meaningful work. Oh, yes. And um, the social issues, and I couldn't agree more that the economic issues is a place where people get together and they claim credit whether they were part of the process or not. But when it comes to social issues, especially issues like abortion, um, the, there's no middle ground, and, and you either win or you lose. And there are committed legislators on both sides of the issue that are going to put legislation um, in play that is going to deal with the abortion issue. It'll be interesting to see what the George State Supreme Court does. If you remember back about 25 years to the outcome of um, Georgia's prohibitions on um, same-sex relations, um, Bowers v. Hardwick and the sodomy code in the Georgia Constitution was ultimately <laughs> overturned by the Georgia State Supreme Court. And so it is possible the court will get involved and may interpret the law similarly. 
Um, I've had a couple of um, Supreme Court, I've had a couple of justices in class recently, um, and how they were talking and saying, listen, I decide on the law. I don't decide on the <clears throat> politics of the law. And um, these are Republican appointees. And in Georgia, while we have Republican appointees, we don't have Republican judges. And so it may well be that um, our state Supreme Court could step in and radically redefine um, state law. Um, and there's certainly going to be plenty of folks that will be willing to forward cases. Andra, we should point out a court. Oh, I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Chris. Uh, Andra, we know that that case in Georgia is still pending. Um, a lower court has said, uh, has over, has uh, ruled that, that the law should not be stayed while the case uh, is pending in the higher court. Um, but we also know that Brian Kemp had two different answers to the question of whether he might support stricter abortion laws in uh, the state. In one debate, he said he didn't think he'd want to go there. In the second debate, he said, well, it's not my first priority, but I have to go where the legislature goes. We'll see what they decide to do, Andra. Well, I mean, I think the, the challenge here are two things. Republicans don't have a supermajority in the state mm -hmm. legislature, so it's not that. So in theory, Governor Kemp could uh, veto um, a draconian piece of anti-abortion legislation. I think it's a question of would he do it, right? Because he doesn't necessarily want to be portrayed as being pro-choice when he's not. Um, and then there is the legal strategy. So, you know, what the Dobbs case is opening up is state control over uh, your, um, you know, over abortion regulation in the state. So it's at each state's discretion. And if this is now, if you know, we've, we've spent years thinking about a federal strategy on abortion. Now that this has actually um, been delegated back to the states, would the U.S. Supreme Court intervene? The state Supreme Court reading its own state's constitution says that there's a right to privacy that's kind of written in. And, um, you know, I think the likelihood of that happening is very, very slim. And so um, I think what we're going to see in terms of abortion rights litigators is that their strategy that used to focus on the federal courts um, is now shifting to the state Supreme Courts, where oftentimes you actually have more rights that are articulated um, in state uh, constitutions than you have in the U.S. Constitution. And so South Carolina sees a right to privacy in their constitution, and Georgia has similar has provisions that will allow that that possible interpretation. And so I think that this is now the next battle to be waged, right? We've just seen kind of a shift in strategy because the Supreme Court has taken themselves out of it. Chuck, just in terms of the general dynamic, well, go ahead, make your point, and then I'll ask my yeah, question. Yeah, well, okay, I think that's what I was going to get to, and that is that uh, this six-week ban passed by the narrowest of majorities in the state house. Now, I have to remember that the rules for passing legislation in the Georgia General Assembly is you have to have a constitutional majority. Doesn't matter how many people you've got on the floor, you need 91 votes in the House and you need 29 in the Senate. So even though there might be, and undoubtedly there is going to be an effort from some uh, conservatives on the abortion issue to want to maybe make it more difficult to get access to pills and things of this nature, uh, and it may you know, bruise feelings and bring about, uh, you know, phys uh, not physical, but uh, oral brawls on the floor of the legislature, there may not be the votes to get that passed. And certainly if the Supreme Court were to take a more moderate stand uh, in order to amend the Constitution, which is what you'd have to do if the Supreme Court steps into it, 
uh, and finds it's a constitutional right under a right to privacy, then you'd have to have 121 votes, two-thirds plus one on the, the floor to pass something. That simply would not happen given the current partisan makeup of the legislature, which is less Republican today than it was in 2019 when the six-week ban was put in place. Chuck, before we have to take a break, what I was going to ask you, I'm glad you added that. And, and the question I wanted to also add to this conversation is just the general dynamics of the Senate and the House at, down at the Capitol. Um, we know the Senate is where the more conservative legislation usually is generated. It's a more, it tends to be a more conservative body. I think that's true this session. We've had some turnover, but it, it will continue to be the birthplace of a lot of the most conservative legislation. And, and here's why it becomes more important this year than ever. On, this, on the House side, Speaker Ralston was often considered the leader who cooled things down. When um, hot-button legislation came over from the Senate, in many instances it was Ralston who tried to calm down the, um, uh, the most conservative voices and find more moderate solutions. Um, the religious liberty bills were a perfect example of that. Now, it didn't always work, Chuck. There were times, for instance, in that six-week abortion ban where Ralston didn't want it, but eventually he was overwhelmed by constituents of conservative legislators and uh, an overwhelming uh, group of legislators who wanted it. But, but Chuck, the reason I ask all that is we now have to see whether John Burns' speaker um, is also going to be a somewhat more moderating voice. Yeah, John Burns was very much a leading lieutenant for, for uh, David Ralston. And the expectation is that he would behave much as Ralston did. Now, the difference is because David Ralston had been in position since 2010, he had all kinds of personal connections that he could yes. call in in order to, behind the scenes, convince some of his colleagues, you know, you don't really want to go there, stay with me on this. Uh, John Burns, being new in the job, doesn't have that set of contacts and that relationship and that uh, transactional uh, background that uh, David Ralston did. So he may prove to be exactly as effective as David Ralston is, but maybe not here in his first term. The jury is still a little bit out on that. It'll be fascinating. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. A great panel of political science professors on the show today, Chris Grant of Mercer, Andrew Gillespie at Emory, and of course, Chuck Bullock at University of Georgia. Greg Bluestein just let us know that um, the Eggs and Issues Breakfast, which we've said is ongoing as we do the show live on Wednesday morning, uh, they're running late. Kemp has just taken the stage, so uh, we're probably not going to get Bluestein on the air today. But uh, of course, GPB News and BAJC will give us a lot of information about what 
Kemp has to say about the session in addition to this economic development announcement we've already talked about. One other quick note before we go on with the panel. Uh, Tomorrow is the inauguration of uh, uh, Brian Kemp for his second term as governor, and GPB is going to be covering the whole event live. And what that means is that Political Rewind will still go on the air as we do a little bit after 9 live in the morning. But we're going to hand off our coverage uh, to Peter Biello and Donna Lowry at 9.30, and they will take us through the actual inauguration ceremony, which you'll be able to watch on TV, you'll be able to watch it on our digital platforms, hear it on radio. And then we're going to come back for, for at 2 o'clock to do a live show in which our panel will talk about exactly what uh, Kemp had to say in his inaugural speech, just so you're all aware of how tomorrow's going to work. All right. Um, Andre Gillespie, let's listen for just quickly to an interview, a portion of an interview that Stacey Abrams did on the Drew Barrymore show the other day. Um, Drew Barrymore asked her whether she thought she was going to run for office after losing the second time to Brian Kemp. And let's listen to that uh, conversation. So what's next? Are you going to run again? Are you going? Like, are you, do we get to look forward to this and galvanize I, I, again? I, I will likely run again. Yeah! I don't know what, I don't know what. <laughs> So are you going to go up against um, some tough men who kind of don't always play fair? (laughs) Well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And if it doesn't work, you try again. So uh, Drew Barrymore obviously expresses her feeling about the way the governor's race unfolded, Andra. Um, But we are also learning now that uh, the final financial disclosure reports, the uh, Abrams campaign reports that they raised a total of $113 million uh, for her race for governor. Sets an all-time record in the state, more than, I think, about almost uh, $50 million or more than the, than the previous uh, run. Um, but uh, they're in debt because they spent apparently a little promiscuously on a number of uh, uh, big-ticket big items that people are now looking at and questioning. So they got to pay off their debt. Okay, with all that as the background, what do we imagine uh, could be next for Stacey Abrams? Andra, let me start with you and then ask everybody else. So one, I'm not surprised that Abrams would say that, you know, she was considering running for something else. She's young, um, she's ambitious, she's talented. Uh, you know, there will be something that we would think about uh, for for her future. Um, you know, it's probably not governor of Georgia. Um, I think the larger question is who would be, uh, what office would donors be willing to support? So the reason why, you know, she was able to raise so much money was one, the uh, uh, campaign finance laws changed. They allowed, uh, you know, for you to to to, to raise uh, money earlier. So that benefited both her and Brian Kemp, who, you know, didn't do too shabby in terms of fundraising. I think he raised about $78 million, which was way more than he raised in 2018. Um, and then this, you know, was perceived at least at first to be a competitive race because of the narrow margin of the 2018 race. Where Abrams faltered towards the end was that when the polls started to consistently say that Brian Kemp was going to win, 
um, donors uh, defected and, and started to give money to other elections that they thought were going to be more competitive. And that's the name of the game. So I think that there are a couple of lessons here. Um, campaign finance is a marker of competitiveness. It does not necessarily, just because you raised more money than anybody else's, does not necessarily guarantee that you're going to win. And so I think the big question for Abrams is, will she have the same backing um, for a future race, given the two defeats in the gubernatorial race? I think that that's going to be really predictive of her viability as a candidate going forward. Um, okay, I want to get uh, you, Chris, and you, Chuck, into this. Let me first uh, make a quick correction. I had a chance to look very briefly at uh, uh, fundraising. In fact, uh, $113 million this time around, Abrams raised $27 million for her 2018 race, so an enormous uh, uh, increase. And as uh, Andra points out, a lot of it has to do with the change in fundraising laws. Um, Chris, I, you know, it, you, Stacey Abrams is a compelling, dynamic, charismatic leader, obviously incredibly smart about politics and beyond politics. But when you've lost a governor's race twice— after raising such high expectations, what does it do to your potential on a race again down the road? Well, it was interesting, Andre saying that the governor's race probably wasn't where she would compete in the future, because then you start wondering where would she compete? We have two Democratic U.S. senators. She was instrumental in getting both of them elected. I can't really see her trying to take on either of them. Um, do you go from running for governor in a campaign like she's been able to have with the stardom that she's been able to find and then run for, I don't know, commissioner of agriculture or some other statewide race? Obviously, there are House of Representative seats that she could run for and probably be quite successful. Um, but um, I, I don't really know where her political future takes her in running for office. Uh, unless she mounts presidential bid. And it's kind of hard to imagine what a presidential bid would look like for someone who's lost a governor's race twice. And um, she is enormously talented. And I will say this, part of her brand is you keep trying, you don't stop. And mm -hmm. so this may give her a chance to overcome some of the candidate factors that would, would forestall other candidates in fundraising um, because her brand is you keep trying. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I wonder where her where her future is. Um, in some ways, I had a Kemp operative come and talk to my campaigns and elections class last semester, and his take was she should have waited four years to run anyway. This was not going to be a good year for her because they knew the governor's internals, and and he quite thought that she would be a very um, electable candidate for the governorship in 2026. And um, this was coming from a Kemp operative. And um, so I, I, I have, I, I'm trying to guess at where she'd go. I agree with Andre about the, um, the credibility of a candidacy at this point, but I don't necessarily see a good fit for her in other political offices. Yeah, Chuck? the real issue, again, exactly as Chris is saying, so what, what does she do now as a two-time loser? Now, I guess you could take heart from looking at the experience of Newt Gingrich, who ran for Congress twice and lost each time and then got elected, although he did better in his second run than his first run. So that would be a bit of a difference. So is it possible that she would do uh, kind of a, a Hillary Clinton, that is, move to another jurisdiction, move to California? She's got tremendous fundraising capability out there. Uh, it's, a, it's a state full of people who moved in from somewhere else. 
would she consider doing that? And then to circle back to, Bill, a point you were making about the fundraising, which we haven't really touched upon, it seems to me that hurts her brand. I mean, she bills herself, I'm a tax attorney. I know how to deal with budgets and things like this. And yet, oh, wow, looky here, you know, you've got this this million-dollar debt that you owe, which would play very much into her opponent's criticism that you're just a tax-and-spend liberal. You don't keep an eye on the bottom line here. And indeed, would even probably lead back to uh, some of the criticisms in her 2018 campaign about here's at that point she still had personal debts. She had a tax bill she hadn't paid. So these kinds of things, this, this, this uh, inability to have a balanced budget with her own campaign here, I think would hurt her, particularly in a state like Georgia, which is fairly conservative on the economic issues, if she chose to run again here for something else. So it's going to be fascinating uh, to watch where Stacey Abrams goes, because I think, again, we all agree she's an enormously talented political uh, leader. Uh, and so we're going to watch that closely. But I wanted to uh, ask all of you about it today, uh, given her comments to Drew Barrymore uh, the, the other day. Um, one last quick uh, item, because we talked about it extensively yesterday, but I'd love to get your take, each of you, before we go to our final break um, of the show. Um, and let me start with you on this, Chris. Uh, we now know that Robert McBurney on June 20, on January 24th is going to hold a hearing in which he will hear arguments as to whether or not the special grand jury's now completed report on efforts to overturn the 2020 election should be released publicly or not. We know also, by the way, that Fonnie Willis, the DA, doesn't have to wait for the report uh, to learn about the, fa the fate of the report to make her own decisions about whether she wants to go to a, a regular grand jury and seek indictments against some of the targets or not. But where do you think all this heads in the weeks, weeks ahead? I'd love to hear each of you uh, talk about that, starting with you, Chris. Well, I think Fonnie Willis is a very clever and capable prosecutor um, who is not afraid of taking on a big fight. And it probably benefits her in Fulton County in terms of her own politics to continue pursuing this. But I don't necessarily think it has to do with her own politics and the decision that she'll make. Um, but it certainly won't hurt her own politics. And um, I think that she is likely to issue, uh, go to a grand jury if she has credible evidence. And I think she's not interested in going to a grand jury and losing a case. She's interested in going to a grand jury if she knows she can win. Well, and there are some ways in which, Andre, that might argue that her office would go to McBurney and want the um, uh, report to continue to be sealed, given that they may not want to let it all out there where it can generate publicity that could, in the long run, work against them. I don't really know how to parse all of that. Andra? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through the possibilities. I mean, it could also be that if she chooses not to go to a grand jury, uh, it would actually be helpful to release all of these transcripts so that we understand why from an evidentiary yeah. standpoint that, like, you know, she's not making those decisions. Because I think if she makes the decision to not proceed with the case, everybody's going to want to know why, like, what was it or what wasn't in the transcripts that led you to mm -hmm. make that decision. So I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we're probably all better served by having access to that transcript and having it publicly released so that people are working from a common set of facts. 
Um, and I'm, you know, not a lawyer. I don't know sort of strategically whether or not it actually works in Willis's best interest to kind of keep that cloistered, uh, as, you know, and, you know, in terms of the decision that she has to make, not knowing one way or the other kind of like where she's leaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. But of course, Chuck, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think if she decides to go with a grand jury and actually work towards a trial, she doesn't release this information. As Andrew said, if she decides not to do that, then you know, at least make this part of the public record and explain why she didn't. All right, let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show. And with the time we have remaining, I'd like to take on two issues that are of national uh, importance right now. And I'd love to get the panel's take on. You're listening to Political Rewind. I said before the break, I wanted to get to a couple of national issues, but uh, Chase McGee just let me know Greg Bluestein has uh, joined us. Greg Bluestein, you are indefatigable. You've just raced out of the eggs and issues breakfast, and you're here to talk to us. Give us some headlines of what you heard. Well, it's still going on at this moment, <laughs> but Governor Kemp <laughs> just wrapped up speaking. And look, not a surprise, but workforce development, workforce training are the top priorities of, uh, among his top priorities for this legislative session. This is also a Georgia chamber gathering, so they want to hear about business. He said it'll include money in his budget for workforce housing. That's a huge issue, especially in areas in uh, more sparsely populated parts of Georgia, like we're seeing in North, West, Northeast Georgia, where Battery, SK Battery is building. In Southeast Georgia, where Hyundai is building. Uh, we have the announcements today that Q-Cells is doing what, what, we, what we believe to be is the largest expansion of solar manufacturing in the nation's history. These thousands of jobs, people are going to need places to live. And so uh, there will be money in the budget to address some workforce housing issues. There will also be some legislation um, to look to, uh, to loosen up uh, local restrictions, uh, local zoning restrictions. Governor says, look, he's a... He's, he's a, uh, he believes in local rights, but every so often the state has to step in. So it's a quick balancing act. Um, but that's been the main focus of this exit issues from the governor, at least. Greg, Greg, I think, am I correct to say there's also some concerns among legislators that you bring in the, the e-vehicle companies Hyundai and Rivian, you bring in Q-cells and others, and they require skilled workforces. And I think there are some in the legislature who fear that Georgians are not uh, prepared for many of these jobs, and they want to address that in some way too, right? Yeah, look, Georgia has this quick start training program, which is nationally renowned, uh, and it helps companies train workforces. It helps Kia, it's going to help SK, it's going to help Hyundai and Rivian, all these others. Um, And so that's a huge issue, is is getting a workforce trained and ready to go. Um, But there's also on the other side of it, Burt Jones, the incoming lieutenant governor, he's endorsing legislation that will allow um, some state jobs uh, to sort of lower their requirements, to allow folks who don't have four-year diplomas have access to some of these jobs they might need it for. Um, all right. Hey, do you need, if you need, it, it, you, I'm thrilled you took some time for us, but if you need to get back to the breakfast and then do your own reporting, please feel free to do that. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, the lieutenant governor is speaking right okay. now, so I might just drop right. right back in there. Thank you. Thank you, Greg Bluestein. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get back guys. to the. Yeah, Bluestein's amazing. I've got to say, I'm so grateful to him. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk about those issues that he brought up in shows coming up in the weeks ahead. But I do want to turn to these couple of national issues for a moment. Uh, Chris, let me start with you on this. We now have learned 
that uh, Joe Biden, when he left the vice presidency and went to the Penn Center where he had an office in Washington, uh, they found in November, lawyers have found that in a locked closet, they found about 10 classified documents, at least a couple of them highly classified uh, dealing with uh, uh, relations with other countries, including Ukraine, uh, as well as uh, other countries. And, and the question now becomes Republicans, they turned them over immediately to the National Archives. But Chris, Republicans are going to pound away at this as an example of a double standard where Biden uh, did something that he's been attacking uh, Donald Trump for for uh, months. Of, of course they are. This is uh, a political game and this is fodder for fuel for the fodder. Um, I think that Despite the differences between the Trump classified documents, the Biden classified documents, which are enormously different contexts and subtleties, no one that is motivated by hearing about classified documents being mishandled is going to tolerate this. Um, Sorry, anyone who has been offended by the FBI investigating President Trump is going to immediately jump on this. Um, it resurrects for them the suspicions they had about Hillary Clinton's emails and all of these things which we have focused so much on in our political culture of late. Uh, there's some better questions to ask, in my personal opinion, like what are we doing and why are classified documents so easily transportable? And are this is this just basic sim- simple human error in some cases? And are we being way too um, uh, focused on the classified documents, more importantly, are these classified documents being leaked? Which to me is a far bigger concern than the fact that the classified documents may have gotten stuck in a box mistakenly and moved. But that's not gonna matter at all for the political lens and the the issue of it doesn't matter. Andre and Chuck, let me add one element to this. Um, We have now learned though, that these documents were discovered in the week before the midterm election and it's only this week that they're coming to light, which is leading some people to wonder uh, why there wasn't more transparency immediately. Was it because of the Democratic fears of how it could affect the midterm? You don't have to address that specifically, but just your general thoughts, Andra, and then you, Chuck. Yeah, well, I mean, I think to Chris's point, it can't just be a mistake in this hyper-polarized environment. Like people, we're not giving each other the benefit of the doubt and everybody's trying to figure out how to game it for their own partisan advantage. And I think that that's really sad that we can't actually get to the truth that way because everybody is, is, is too busy trying to point fingers at the other. Um, I, you know, I think that this is serious. Uh, you know, if, if, if President Biden needs, you know, to be punished in some way for this, uh, if it turns out that this was, you know, malicious uh, and intentional, then and then, you know, I, I think that you have to meet that out for Democrats the same way that you would meet that out for Republicans, even though that's still highly contested. But I, I do question the false equivalencies that are going on here. At, when I talk about this to my mother, I was like, let's just say that, you know, the, the civil penalty for this was a thousand dollars document. So President Biden would be somewhere on the hook for about ten thousand dollars, basically, from what we've heard. Right. President Trump would be on the hook for over four million dollars, right? Like there's this magnitude issue. <laughs> I declassified this in my mind. How come you didn't know about this? 
And there is the lying to prosecutors when they ask for more of it and the general recalcitrance. Like it's 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 not the same thing. And I think we need to kind of be very clear about that and call that out. Andra Gillespie, I could see this as a whole new segment on our show when you're on. How is Andra explaining to her mother issues in political <laughs> news? <laughs> Chuck Bullock, give us your take on this. <laughs> yeah, Andra has gone through and done a nice job of pointing out the differences between these, but Chris is also correct, and that is certainly uh, unless you are a Biden supporter, you're going to look at this and say, well, this is something apparently everybody does, and therefore it diminishes any kind of concerns about Donald Trump having had uh, <clears throat> all the documents that he had. So it, in essence, I think kind of takes this off the table pretty much as an issue going forward that uh, the average voter is going to say, yeah, this is just something that, that the public officials do. They probably shouldn't, but they do it, uh, whether it be malicious or just an oversight, uh, they do it. So move on. Well, OK, so this plays into the other issue that, unfortunately, we're not going to have a lot of time about that I wanted to get, get to today. And that's the Republicans in, on the House side of, uh, of the U.S. House have now begun the efforts that they said they were going to make to investigate uh, everything they possibly can about the Biden administration and more. Let me read you the New York Times headline uh, of lead. A divided House voted on Tuesday to launch a wide-ranging investigation into federal law enforcement and national security agencies as Republicans promised to use their new powers in Congress to scrutinize what they said was a concerted effort by the government to silence and punish conservatives at all level from protesters at school board meetings to former President uh, Donald Trump. And Chuck Bullock, what they, what they are calling all of this is the weaponization of the federal government. And the reality is this does not look like something that is going to go uh, in a very positive direction, Chuck. No, and what we witnessed last week was a remarkable situation where it took 13, 14, 15 rounds to choose a new speaker. The new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is desperate to try to find something to unify his caucus. Going after Democrats is one of the things that will do this. And so that's an incentive to spend a lot of time digging into whatever misdeeds you think Democrats have been guilty of over the last several years. And then the other element here is that Congress has become so dysfunctional. It's not like if the Republicans decided we want to do something about the environment or health care or education or on and on and on. They're not going to come up with anything from their perspective, which would then be able to pass in the United States Senate. So this will give them something to do. On the Senate side, yeah, they can spend their time confirming judges. The House has no role in that. So doing investigations will be something they can do to fill the next two years. I, I got I got a, I got a time for about 30 seconds from each of you, uh, Chris and Andre. So here's the other part of this. Um, one of the things they want to do is investigate the weaponization of DOJ and FBI as a political tool to go after conservatives. And Chris, there are people who are concerned that they are going to try to derail investigations, the investigations into Donald Trump as they do all this. You got about, like I said, 30 seconds on this, Chris, and then you, Andre. I am concerned about that as well. Um, they don't have much of a legislative agenda, and it's unlikely they'll be able to pass any legislation. So they're going to use what power they have. Andra, you're, you get the final word. So I agree. 
uh, with both Chuck and Chris. Um, I think that this is a double-edged sword though. And so if they look excessive, if they look overzealous, if they look like they're sort of uh, privileging conspiracy theories, this could backfire on them. And sadly, Kevin McCarthy is in a weakened position that he might not be able to rein it in with just the power of personal persuasion. Andrew Gillespie, Charles Bullock, Chris Grant, thank you for a wonderful conversation on Political Rewind today. We are completely out of time. Back again tomorrow morning uh, and then at 2 in the afternoon to talk about the governor's inauguration. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow.